1: Free Library. A big thanks today to the Maryland Historical Society for hosting us once again as our Central Library continues to undergo its historic renovation. And a special welcome to all the members of the Mencken Society for all the support you've shown to the Pratt Library over the years. We truly appreciate it. H.L. Mencken, as you know, was a pioneer journalist and columnist here in Baltimore. In 1929, John Owens, the editor in chief of the Baltimore Sun Papers, called Mencken incomparably the most brilliant man engaged in journalism in America. And it was a career he truly fought for. After graduating from Poly, he went into the family business of cigar making, as expected. But he had a true passion for journalism. And after his father passed away, he showed up at the Herald every night after work for weeks until they finally gave him an assignment. I hope you'll get a chance to visit our new exhibit in the Central Library, which highlights some of Mencken's journalistic achievements. It includes the telegraph tapes of the famous Scopes trials. And we want to give a big thanks to the Baltimore Sun and Sun librarian Paul McArdle for that contribution. Anyone who has read anything by Mencken knows that he was biting and that he spared no one. Some of his favorite targets were politicians. He wrote of President Calvin Coolidge, He had no ideas and he was not a nuisance. It's that sharp wit that made Mencken the writer he was. It's that suspicion and that curiosity that lives in many of the journalists today who follow in the footsteps of H.L. Mencken. And no one knows that better than our keynote speaker today. Dana Milbank is a nationally syndicated op-ed columnist. He has been honored for his work by both the White House Correspondents Association and the National Press Club. Milbank was named one of the nation's top political journalists by Columbia Journalism Review, and he is also the author of three books, including the bestseller, Homo Politicus. Please join me in welcoming for the 2018 Menken Day Memorial Lecture, Mr. Dana Milbank.
0: Thank you very much, Heidi. I, uh On how Megan's editors spoke of him, it occurred to me that none of my editors have ever used any such words to describe him. In fact, they're the biting ones. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here and to wish H.L. Uh, Megan a happy 138th birthday. Now, Mencken, you know, he's he's been doing an amazing job lately, and it's being recognized more and more. Uh, I'm looking looking forward to working with him. Um, It is a great relief to get uh, out of uh, Washington uh, this afternoon. See, we're dealing with a a major storm down there. Um, I'm not not talking about Florence, so, of course, our our hearts are with the people of the Carolina Coast right now. Uh, Neither am I talking about that perpetual orange thunderhead hovering between the ellipse and Lafayette Square. Uh, No, I'm I'm talking about the storm unleashed by my very senior colleague at the Post, Bob Woodward. Uh, In his book, which I am not here to sell, although the Kindle version is available for $14.99 at (laughs) Amazon.com. He turns the president's tricks against him. Everybody insults the president instead of the other way around. In Woodward's account, the defense secretary said Trump had the, quote, understanding of a fifth or sixth grader. Economic advisor Gary Cohn described him as a professional liar. Lawyer John Dowd told the president he was not really capable of answering the prosecutor's questions. The secretary of state called Trump a moron, and the White House chief of staff called him an idiot. <laughs> now, Cohn is even reported to have stolen papers from Trump's desk in hopes that, like a toddler, he would forget that they were ever there and therefore not decide to cancel a trade deal. And amazingly, this actually worked. (laughs) Now, Trump says that people who criticize him are traitors. Cohn committed treason by threatening to quit. Jeff Sessions is a traitor for recusing himself from the Russia probe. They join in their treason, according to Trump, the author of the anonymous New York Times op-ed last week, virtually all Democrats, several Republicans, and, of course, every single one of us journalists. Because treason is a capital offense, I thought I'd try to get on the President's good side, in hopes he'll commute my sentence. He said, uh, just recently, quote, I will write the real book, unquote, to counter the scam Woodward just published. Therefore, in hopes of showing my loyalty, I have submitted the following draft, for the jacket copy of Trump's forthcoming version of his presidency titled The Real Book. Before Donald Trump became president, there were four, there was 42% unemployment. Most of the residents of Chicago had been murdered. The violent gang MS-13, led by Nancy Pelosi, controlled much of the country. President Barack Obama personally tapped Trump's phones and Ted Cruz's father assassinated John F. Kennedy. Then, in November 2016, Trump won a bigger electoral landslide than Ronald Reagan's despite millions of fraudulent votes for his opponent. Immediately, American carnage ceased. Every African American got a job. The economy became so good it has four O's. Perhaps the best in our country's history, and Trump was more popular than Abraham Lincoln. Despite the fact that Trump had made America great again, Democrats aided by the Failing New York Times, the Amazon Washington Post, and fake news CNN used a phony dossier to start a rigged witch hunt. There was no collusion, but leaking liar James Comey, mentally retarded Jeff Sessions, angry conflicted Democrat Bob Mueller, so called judges, the corrupt FBI, and the Justice Department, justices in quotes, made Joseph McCarthy look like a baby. Fortunately, Trump summarily declared them all guilty of treason did the same to the rest of his opponents, and then assembled the largest audience ever to witness an execution, period. (laughs) Now he's president for life, and when he speaks, people sit up at attention. Pre-order today, or face the consequences. (laughs) Uh, The people's representatives were thinking of leaving town early this week before Florence. They were worried their flights might get canceled, but they made a very sensible decision to stay, and it, it This is a good idea because it seems they have been running a little bit behind in their work. Exactly 50 weeks ago, they decided they would investigate the problems with the response to the hurricanes last year in Puerto Rico. But they hemmed and they hawed and they dithered and stalled for nearly a year, and they finally scheduled the hearing on last year's storms with the FEMA administrator to take place on Thursday, just as Florence was about to hit (laughs) North Carolina. The hearing uh, was called off under the decision that it's a bit late to learn from 2017 when you're in the middle of 2018 storms. As a very wise man once said, heck of a job. <laughs> Luckily, we won't have to investigate the Puerto Rico recovery at all because the President has helpfully informed us that the official tally of the dead from those storms is not true and it was made up by Democrats. Now, we've seen such skepticism before from the President. We can expect he'll soon be demanding the death the, the dead produce their own death certificates long form only before he'll recognize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gather you've had many distinguished and worthy people give this talk. So I'm both honored and a bit puzzled that you have chosen me for today's. You may not know this, but I am one of the worst people, one of the most corrupt and dishonest. I am a liar. I am a hater. I am, in fact, the enemy of the American people. (laughs) As such, I am a danger to the national security of this country, second only to the most dangerous geopolitical threat America faces in the world today. Yes, that's Canada. (laughs) While we are getting along fine for now with North Korea and Russia, we are in a trade war and a war of words with that great menace to the North it can't be much longer before it's a shooting war. I'm sure you'll all agree with me when I say, Canada had it coming, eh? <laughs> they inflicted Nickelback on us. We did nothing. They sent us Justin Bieber. and turned the other cheek. They were responsible for one abomination after the other. Poutine, diphthong vowels, Hawaiian pizza, They actually invented that. Instant mashed potatoes and Ted Cruz. Still, we did not retaliate until now. Finally, the United States has a president with the guts to stand up to Canada. He called their prime minister, meek, very dishonest, and weak. Our U.S. trade representative said there's a special place in hell for Trudeau and our top White House economic advisor said Trudeau stabbed us in the back and is guilty of betrayal and double-crossing. How do you feel now, Canada? Or to put it in a language you understand, how is she booting her? (laughs) (laughs) Our president is also worried about violence from another usual source, Democrats. A few weeks ago, he predicted there would be bloodshed in Congress if Democrats take over. Quote, they will overturn everything that we've done and they'll do it quickly and violently and violently, he repeated. These are violent people. His concern is entirely understandable. If Democrats were to take over the House, we all know it would be just a matter of days until the honorable gentle lady from San Francisco approaches Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and strikes her good friend from Bakersfield over his distinguished head with a folding chair. I admittedly had not appreciated the violent threat presented by Pelosi before Trump pointed it out. Indeed, I had written a column suggesting that the Democrats in the House just might want to think about whether they can appeal to the younger voters that are becoming their base if their top three leaders are ages 78, 79, and 77. (laughs) If you add them all together, they are 234 years old, which is a full century older than Mencken. Uh, And until the summer's primaries, the plan had actually been that they would eventually replace Pelosi with Joe Crowley, who was just a somewhat less old person. This created the likelihood that those leading the Democrats' legislative opposition to President Trump, a white guy from Queens, would soon be Chuck Schumer, a white guy from Brooklyn, and Crowley, another white guy from Queens. Their slogan, make the outer boroughs great again. (laughs) Uh, speaking of dangerous threats, after accepting back in February the invitation to speak today, I became worried about exactly what I had gotten myself into. You no doubt know this already, but I was unaware of the appropriation of Mencken by some rather, shall we say, exotic elements of society. Uh, the White House speechwriter Darren Beatty was fired in May after my colleague at the Post, Bob Costa, inquired about a speaking appearance in 2016 before the Mencken Club with white nationalists, he was fired by the White House. And I have to tell you, to get fired by this White House for being too much of a white nationalist, okay, that's saying something. I was worried I might have to show up today in a a, a white sheet. But I was relieved to see that the Mencken Club is in fact a rump group that has absolutely nothing to do with the Mencken Society, the Pratt Library, or indeed anything that I could tell that to do with Mencken whatsoever. Um, I was further relieved to uh, read this week, in Reason, a piece by uh, a person, some of you know, Marian Elizabeth Rogers, saying Mencken would have rejected his white nationalist fanboys, Richard Spencer, and fellow Vermin. Now, curiously, the left has also been claiming Mencken lately. There's an apocryphal Mencken quote that went viral on the web, after Trump's election, a supposed prediction that, quote, the White House will be occupied by a downright fool and a complete narcissistic moron. Sounded a little too good to be true, and it was. The actual passage from 1920 was still prescient, though Trump's foes opted to gild the lily with that narcissistic bit. The actual Let's let's think about it, the larger the mob, the harder the test. In small areas before small electorates, a first-rate man occasionally fights his way through, carrying even the mob with him by the force of his personality. But when the field is nationwide and the fight must be waged chiefly at second and third hand, the force of personality cannot so readily make itself felt. Then all the odds are on the man who is, intrinsically, the most devious and mediocre, the man who can most adeptly disperse the notions that his mind is a virtual vacuum. So far, so good. The presidency tends year by year to go to such men. As democracy is perfected, the office represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. We move toward a lofty ideal. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. So it is quite close to the original. we, We didn't have to add in the narcissistic. Now, um, The problem here is arguably we wound up with Trump precisely because of the force of his personality, uh, even if he coincidentally happened to be the most devious. Uh, But what Mencken warned about a century ago is undoubtedly true today. The attempts to make our system more small-d democratic with primaries referendums have contributed to the polarization and the paralysis that we have today. Mencken is one of those thinkers like Oscar Wilde, who is always being misattributed and assigned things he never actually wrote or said. Uh, perhaps the greatest practitioner of this misattribution uh, in recent times, not surprisingly, comes from the Trump White House. I speak, if you haven't guessed it, of the mooch. Before his glorious 10 day tenure as the White House communications director, Anthony Scaramucci tweeted out this bit of wisdom from the ages Dance like no one is watching, sing like no one is listening, love like you've never been hurt, and live like it's heaven on earth. He attributed this to Mark Twain. (laughs) In In reality, this fine aphorism had its origins in 1980s pop music. Inevitably, the parodies poured in on Twitter. Na 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 na, I'm getting jiggy witted it, Nelson Mandela. Love, love will keep us together. Think of me, babe, whenever. Jesus Christ. Bailamos, let the rhythm take you over. Christopher Columbus. Nothing's gonna stop us. Nothing's gonna stop us now. Yes, of course, that was Ernest Hemingway. Sadly, we have lost the mooch too soon, but there have been other bright lights sustaining the Trump administration that would have amused Mencken, who mocked the idea of the plain folk being in charge. There's the Interior Secretary, who arrived to work in downtown Washington on horseback and who has a special secretarial flag raised and lowered when he enters and leaves the building. There's the Chief Scientist at the Department of Agriculture, who is not actually a scientist. Uh, He was a a radio show host. Uh, And, of course, there was the Meineke Muffler branch manager who got a job as assistant to the Secretary of Energy, the congressional relations manager at HUD, who previously worked as a bartender, and the confidential assistant at the Agriculture Department, who before that was a cabana attendant at the Westchester Country Club in Rye, New York. According to his resume, he, quote, identified and addressed customers' needs in a timely and orderly manner, which, when you think of it, is exactly what we want our government to be doing. But perhaps nobody has failed upwardly as well as Larry Kudlow, the White House Chief Economic Advisor. This is what he wrote in December 2007, on the eve of the housing collapse. Quote, Despite all the doom and gloom from the economic pessimists, the resilient U.S. economy continues moving ahead. Gloomy forecasters will wind up with egg on their faces and very positive news in housing should cushion falling home sales and prices. There's no recession coming. It's not going to happen. The boom is alive and well. Early 2008, when the economy was clearly beginning this hour, he said it would be a mild correction if that the economy will be rat- rebounding sometime this summer, not sooner. We're in a slow patch, that's all. It's nothing to get up in arms about. And then even when the economy didn't rebound and housing continued its collapse, Kudlow declared... In July 2008, a bottom in the housing problem, in fact, maybe the tiniest beginnings of a recovery. Six weeks later, the crash. This man is now leading the economic strategy for our nation. I think it's a fool's errand to guess what Mencken would say about our current mess. I'd like to think many of his views, particularly those discovered in his diaries, would have been different in these different times. I certainly make no apology for them, particularly because, as a Jew, I would be one of those he disdained. I suspect he would have encountered the same difficulty many of us have today in writing about current affairs. Satire is premised on the idea of turning a real situation into a ridiculous one. But it's hard to imagine a scenario more ridiculous than the actual one today. How could somebody make today's politics more absurd than it actually is? can also struggled in times of crisis, particularly with the coming of the Second World War. I suspect he would have similar difficulties today as many of us do when our assumptions about the stability of our freedoms are in question. Certainly he would have disdain for everybody in this whole gruesome affair, most of all us journalists. I'd like to think he would ridicule my fellow journalists who would agree to be penned in at Trump rallies while he denounces them and leaves audiences to jeer at them as the enemy of the people. In one recent rally, Trump attacked journalists 21 times in 75 minutes. And journalists dutifully stood there as his pinatas and reported his quote unquote news back to readers and viewers. The attacks on the press at this rally spanned the entirety of coverage the 2016 campaign, trade, the economy, NATO, Russia as education, the Queen of England. There were more attacks on the press and on Democrats, even. And, of course, Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin actually got favorable mentions. Uh, But there's a good reason for this. Democrats weren't in the the room. To be a demagogue, you need to make the enemy a clear and present threat. Journalists are present and clearly visible on the risers and penned in. It looks like the Academy Awards, Trump said at one rally, reveling in the evil media's attention. We become the enemy, against which... Trump whips up his crowds into a frenzy. To their credit, CNN, MSNBC didn't take that particular rally feed live. But why are journalists allowing ourselves to be sitting ducks? I think we should reduce our presence, just have the Air Force One pool, small rotating group that uh, 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 we split among ourselves. Any other journalists who want to cover these spectacles should attend as members of the public as my colleagues and I did when Trump briefly banned the Post and other outlets from covering his events during the campaign. If Trump says something outrageous, report it. If there's violence or conspiracy theorists taking over the place as they did on one night, report that. But let's not make ourselves into targets and let's not reward this demagoguery with airtime. We, of course, are the reason Trump is president in the first place. You know, virtually all of my colleagues in the news business expected Trump would be disastrous for America and the world, but he was good for us. Too often, my colleagues and I tend to vote the story and devote lavish coverage to that which produces the most conflict, the most outrage, and the largest audience. Trump was the surest way to boost readership and viewership because of the spectacle he creates, the violence, the bigotry, the name-calling, the belligerent rhetoric. Fox News essentially created Trump as a political figure, validating his birther nonsense on Fox and Friends in the mornings and giving him an unparalleled platform before he launched his campaign. The rest of the news media gave the entertainer undiluted and uncritical coverage, at least until he secured the nomination, sacrificing our integrity for viewership and readership. It's estimated that the free press Trump got in the campaign was worth some $2 billion in ads. Trump should not have been treated as though he were Mitt Romney or John McCain or, or George Bush or any of the other Republican nominees. He was fundamentally different, operating outside of America's democratic values and constitutional restraints. And he should be treated as just another president. as he, he attacks the pillars of a free society, the courts, so-called judges, free press, the Justice Department, FBI, and the rule of law. Journalists for generations styled themselves watchdogs of democracy, growling at falsehoods, barking at abuses in the system. Many of my post-colleagues have held up this fine tradition, but in general, watchdogs were outnumbered by those of us who cover politics as a horse race, praising the maneuvers of whichever candidate can get ahead in the polls. What's most unsettling about what's happened here, I think, is we've now seemed to have lost any common agreement on what is fact as fiction. I used to say that if you want to know whether Trump was telling the truth flip a coin but it turns out I was overstating the odds the post fact checker recently reviewed all the claims Trump made in one rally and found that 76% of them were false or misleading therefore assuming this proportion holds for all Trump utterances the odds that he is telling the truth are closer to the chance of drawing a spade at random from a 52 card deck Now, some in my business say the president is lying. I think it's more complicated than that. I think he genuinely believes the thing he is saying the moment he says it, even if it's exactly opposite what he said the day before. Pardon my Marco Rubio. (laughs) The best example of this, my favorite, was Inauguration Day. The day after... went, uh, you may remember, he went to the CIA talking to workers there, and he described the event of the day before. He said, it was almost raining, but God looked down, and he said, we're not going to let it rain on your speech. In fact, when I first started, I said, uh-oh. The first line, I got hit by a couple of drops, but the truth is that it stopped immediately. It was amazing, and then it became really sunny, and then I walked off, and it poured right after I left. Okay, so I was there, for the inaugural address. I was in the sixth row, about 40 feet from Trump, and I remembered the exact opposite. It began to rain when he started, and it tapered off toward the end. There wasn't a single ray of sunshine, as I recalled, before, during, after the speech. So I wondered if my memory was playing tricks on me. So I I watched they have a 360-degree time-lapse video of the inauguration. Nope, not a single break in the clouds, so then I called my colleagues at the Capital Weather Gang, who provided me with these satellite images from before, during, and after the address. Nope, massive, unbroken cloud cover all the way over the entire region, way out through West Virginia. They showed me the radar images, a band of rain approaching just before Trump's address, crossing the area while Trump spoke, and then departing to the east as he finished, no pouring after he left. Why would he say something so easily disproven because he thinks it's true. In a 2007 deposition, he was uh, suing author Timothy O'Brien for asserting that Trump's net worth wasn't in the billions, but in the range of 150 million to 250 million. Trump was asked how he calculates his net worth. His answer: My net worth fluctuates, and it goes up and down with the markets, and with attitudes, and with feelings, even my own feelings. I would say it's my general attitude at the time that the question may be asked. I for one would very much like it if my net worth were determined not by my investment accounts but by my attitudes and feelings. Where does this come from? (laughs) My instinct for a long time was that this was all an act. I first met Trump in 1999. He was considering running for the president on the Reform Party. Ticket, and in this case, it was against Pat Buchanan. So he did everything he could possibly do at the time to be not Pat Buchanan. So I flew around with him on his 727 with Roger Stone and Roger Stone's dog, uh, uh, and he and he was he was for abortion rights. He was for universal health care. He was all about tolerance. He, he even took us to the Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles to highlight his embrace of religious and racial minorities. Now, my suspicion that he's all about fakery was enhanced by my visit during the campaign to the Trump International Hotel in D.C. when, just for kicks, I blew $1,000 of uh, Jeff Bezos' money by renting a room to savor the experience. Examining my posh surroundings, Italian bed linens, French table linens, Chinese duvet, Korean TV, and yes, Mexican tequila, I came across the Gideon Bible in the night scene with a note on Trump Hotel Stationery. It said, If you would like to continue your spiritual journey, we also offer the following. Talmud, Koran, Gita, Avesta, Tripitaka, Pali Canon, Sri Guru, Granth Sahib, Book of Mormon, kindly contact Housekeeping, should you wish to have one delivered. Sure enough, minutes after my call to housekeeping, a pleasant woman arrived with a copy of the glorious Koran in Arabic and English, along with a brown prayer rug and a compass pointing in the direction of Akhava and Mecca. I expressed skepticism to her that the hotel really had a copy of the Talmud because this is millions of words and many volumes of Jewish law it would take take a whole truck to deliver. I will find it for you, she vowed. I tipped her $4 for the Koran and declined the Talmud. Now, this exchange, which I undertook while wearing a made-in-China Trump Hotel's bathrobe, bathrobe and Trump slippers, said everything you need to know about Trump, I thought. The candidate talked of banning Muslims from the country, but Trump, the hotelier, welcomed Muslims with Qurans and prayer rugs. Now, given that we're just eight weeks from the midterm elections, you probably want me to speak to you today about my predictions And if you are expecting wise prognostication from me, I'm afraid you're gravely mistaken. During the campaign, I showed my crystal ball abilities when I predicted that there was absolutely no way Republican primary voters would select Trump as their nominee. I was so sure of this that I promised that if I were wrong, I would eat that entire column of newsprint. And so, as Trump clinched the nomination, I sat down to eat my words. Insight Edition, People Magazine, ABC News, CNN, broadcasters from Japan, they were all interested. One medical website researched my health risks and and reported, I guess this is good news, that newspaper ink is, quote, less toxic than sodium cyanide. (laughs) The most common question I was asked, did I learn a lesson? And to this, my answer is an emphatic yes. Never consume newspaper with Trump wine. (laughs) I persuaded the post food critic, Tom Sitsuma, some of you may read him here, to join me for the meal. and I got one of Washington's best chefs to prepare a a nine-course extravaganza based on newsprint, newspaper-smoked wagyu steak, filet of fish fried in buttermilk-soaked newspaper, a taco bowl with grilled newspaper guacamole, you get the idea. Now, for those of you considering eating newspaper, I have some tips. The more finely ground the newspaper is, the better your experience will be. Those dishes with the largest chunks of newsprint, at one point I raised my fork and noticed I was about to eat a Rolex ad. Uh, those are rather less enticing. Uh, anybody who says they know what's going to happen on election day is, is making it up. Uh, we have no idea any number of things can happen between now election day. In fact, any number of things have probably happened since I turned my phone off to give this speech. Um, But if the election were held today, I can state with complete confidence that Democrats would not only pick up the two dozen seats to take the House, but also the seats needed to take the Senate. And I can state this with absolute confidence because the election is not being held today. (laughs) So there is no way I can be proven wrong. Um, I mentioned Jeff Bezos earlier. Uh, Trump supposes that the newspaper is doing the bidding of our owner, the Amazon founder. Well, I am here to tell you that this is a big lie. Also, I'm here to tell you that Big Little Lies, Season 1, starring Reese Witherspoon (laughs) and Cole Kidman et al., is on Amazon Video, included in HBO and Amazon, for $14.99 a month. Bezos is perfectly entitled to put his imprint on the post, but the fact is he interferes little with the editorial product. I'm not going to tell you where, that you can buy interference and over one million other books on Amazon Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> but don't take my word for it. Ask Alexa. She will echo my assertions. I am, as a lobbyist for Amazon, extremely loyal. I currently spend 110% of my salary on Amazon and have depleted all of my retirement savings. My recent orders make me look like possibly a psycho killer. (laughs) A large inflatable spider, Pokemon cards, prosthetic body parts, meat thermometer, volleyball net, skeleton costume, and cardboard coffin. I'm not going to (laughs) explain. Now I'm at work on getting Amazon's uh, HQ2 into Washington. And I think I have an offer that Bezos, who brought Amazon's board to our region just this week, can not refuse. Amazon can have Washington, all of it. (laughs) I'm not talking about the 75% of the city under the jurisdiction of the District of Columbia where I live, known for its world-leading production of parking tickets. On offer, rather, is the 25% of Washington controlled by the federal government, 9,683 acres. In recent years, federal Washington has ceased to function. It would be much more productive if it were turned over to Amazon. Amazon says it's looking for an urban or downtown campus. As the new owner of the National Mall, Amazon would find its headquarters conveniently located in a place that hosted the largest audience ever to witness an inauguration, (laughs) period, both in person and around the globe. Locating HQ2 in Washington would immediately give Amazon the most overeducated and underemployed workforce in the world, the 535 members of the U.S. Congress. (laughs) They barely work two days a week and produce little of importance. They would be better used writing product descriptions, processing orders for Amazon. I only suggest they not be put in charge of finances. The nine justices of the Supreme Court, likewise, have abundant free time help Amazon. In recent years they've taken on only half as many cases as they did just a few decades ago and they vacation from late June until October. That leaves them plenty of time to handle returns and complaints for Amazon. Although it is highly recommended that Justice Thomas not be assigned a customer-facing role. Uh, Lest I leave you with too cynical a view of the Capitol, let me offer a bit of cheer. We have a tendency these days to get hysterical, at least I do, <laughs> about the state of the country. Uh, we're seeing a, a proliferation of Nazi comparisons, uh, particularly when the fam- we saw the family separation to the border. My editor caught me using one. There were reports that border agents were telling parents they were taking their kids away just to give them a bath, and that was the last the parents saw of the children. So I wrote in my column that this uh, echoed something ominous, we'd uh, heard from Nazi Germany. My editor took it out and he said, there's a crucial difference. We weren't actually killing the kids. There is a troubling rise of racism and of white supremacy, not least with the Mankin Club. But Donald Trump is no Adolf Hitler, and this isn't Germany in 1933. Neither is Trump the dictator he's often accused of being. He does show an alarming disregard for the institutions of democracy, and he seems to admire autocrats around the world. But dictatorships are about order and discipline, and Trump has been all about chaos and license. He sometimes talks like Mussolini, but he governs like Mr. Bean. LAUGHTER There is likewise a tendency amid the chaos to think that American government is disintegrating before our eyes. But we've been through much worse. This is the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, which itself followed the King assassination a time of war and rioting. We survived 68, and we'll get through this too. Truth is, our situation is much more stable than it has been at many periods in American history. And believe it or not, the discourse uh, is a whole lot more civil. During the 1790s, it wasn't at all clear that the new country would survive foreign invasion or internal division. The uh, 1810s brought more of the same. Divisions of the 1850s led to the Civil War. The 1890s were filled with farmer revolts, strikes, robber barons, massive immigration, war with Spain, and economic depression, the expansion of Jim Crow. The 1930s brought the Great Depression and the rise of fascism, and then '68. Now, by contrast, we have stable democratic institutions across the entire country in a way we did not before. Our institutions, though challenged, have been a source of strength. Federalism has been a check on Trump. As California, New York, and other states push back against him. The justice system is proving to be a powerful check on him. Trump, though breaking norms, seems to lack the appetite and the competence to pull off a direct assault on democracy. The real danger is not from Trump, but from the forces that gave rise to him and could continue to erode erode democracy over time. Broad and persistent wealth inequality, the backlash against America's shift from a white majority nation to a majority-minority one, which it will become in 2044, the accompanying realignment of parties along racial lines, and the related polarization. Inequality destabilizes democracy by destroying the belief in one person, one vote, and giving rise to demagoguery. The United States is struggling with its transformation from an electorate of white men to a multicultural one. In a sense, American democracy didn't really kick in until the late 1960s. Periods we romanticize as civil and collegial were such because we struggled to keep race off of the national agenda. This is the paradox of the Trump era. Every day brings more calamity, and yet it could not be clearer that the power structure that created the mess is on its way out. Millennials will sometime this year become the largest living generation, and Generation Z behind them is poised to be even larger. They will, it appears, resoundingly repudiate the status quo. The generational gap in political views is wider than at any point since people first started looking at it. Seventy-nine percent of millennials say immigrants strengthen America, That's versus 47% for the oldest, the silent generation. 77% of millennials say good diplomacy is the best way to ensure peace versus 43% for the silent. Past crises have been resolved by either war, economic booms, or just dumb luck, but this crisis could resolve itself naturally through the process they call generational replacement. In other words, the solution is we all just need to die. <laughs> I trust this is a conclusion Megan could support. <laughs> now if somebody will give me a brandy, I'll answer questions, Christopher kitchen style. Anybody want to sir? Yeah, this is a very nice talk. Thank you. Uh, I don't know where, some of Mankin's most
1: scathing criticisms, particularly in his later years in the 30s and 40s, was reserved for journalism, which he held very little opinion of, And which uh, in the 30s, uh, either a gridiron dinner or White House correspondent, Franklin Roosevelt, brilliantly used Mankin's old words to embarrass him earlier. Uh, so if I were advising Trump today, I would Tell him to start quoting Mencken. He's a journalist because he would a
0: much uh, more plausible response. Uh, yes. After this business with the White House speechwriter in the, in the Mencken Club, I suspect that's not exactly where the president wants to go <laughs> at this moment. But yes, I've been I've, I've read a, a good bit about that. He really had a contempt for his fellow journalists and described them as a bunch of drunks. And I'm saying, oh, so. <laughs> Yes, it, uh, journalistic self-loathing uh, uh, goes back uh, quite a long way, and you know, I a large number of the columns I do are sort of disparaging the work of the uh, the horse race uh, journalists. But of, of course, I get I just read you a bunch of poll numbers. I get uh, I get I get swept up in it too. So, uh, um, but I, you know, we did you know, maybe five, ten years ago got rid of our ombudsman at the Washington Post. I applauded that completely. I'm like everybody and their uncle is now a journalism critic and we're the worst critics of ourselves so we hardly hardly needed to pile on with that. Uh, But yeah, that's a a good point. And, And nobody ever sticks up for the press. Yes, sir?
1: Are you concerned about the source of news that the millennials are getting from their social media? Are you concerned about the future of journalism
0: I, I'm deeply concerned about the future of, of journalism for, for, for many reasons. And um, just talking with somebody earlier about the, the, the sad demise of the uh, Metropolitan, the, the community newspapers. A lar- we've lost a large number of them, a, a quarter or a third. But I, just as, as bad as the, uh, uh, the, the staffs are about half what they were uh, before we lost our, uh, our business model. Uh, Trump I think for better or worse has unbroken our business model because he, he sells as, as I was saying in the, in the talk he sells uh, he sells uh, newspapers and online subscriptions and uh, uh, and magazine and, and TV the, uh, the 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 splintering of, of the news uh, I had begun you know maybe a decade ago to be uh, concerned about uh, and that everybody can sort of choose whichever news they, uh, they wish to receive. And basically that, that is what's happened, that people are, are basically uh, entering uh, bubbles of their own choosing, and they're getting their, the news often uh, uh, through Facebook uh, from people of like minds who are sending them things they want to uh, hear. So, uh, and of course the, the, you no longer get a newspaper you know, thump on your doorstep in the morning so you're basically entering it uh, through the filter of, uh, of people who have selected uh, that news for you rather than presenting the entire thing. Um, I do think we're beginning, people are beginning to be aware at least that it, it's a problem. I haven't seen uh, uh, a real solutions to fix it so far. But there has been uh, a rebounding of big brands in journalism. Um, so the Post certainly has benefited from that. Also helps to be uh, owned by the richest man in the world. We've seen it uh, at other large uh, news organizations as well. And I think you've seen a bit of a flight back to uh, reputation uh, after a lot of uh, discrediting of uh, other sources of information. But th- I think that's just the, the, you know, the beginning of some uh, green shoots here. But we are definitely living in parallel uh, echo chambers uh, right now in terms of how we receive our news uh, in terms of who we are friends with, uh, where we live, um, you know, the, uh, we are, party has replaced race as the biggest dividing factor in American culture. Now, that's a bit misleading because essentially, as I was saying in the talk, party has, uh, is basically now a proxy, uh, for race. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's very ominous. Um, but, uh, Uh, That's why I asked for some (laughs) brandy. Yes, ma'am. Do
1: you just since you're at the post and there's um, been so many links um, recently, especially after the New York Times piece um, and also Mr. Woodward's book, saying likening right the time right now to Watergate, Mm -hmm. and since you're at the post, um, you obviously weren't working at the post (coughs) during Watergate. But do you think those are apt?
0: you know, it's one of those things, everybody always goes to Watergate. In fact, you know, we started putting, you know, Iran-Contragate and everything, you know, Gates on uh, gate and uh, uh, behind everything. Um, so, um, I, you know, I think, I, I, it, no, in, in many ways, I think it's uh, the situation we're potentially talking about if allegations were true, it would be worse than that. But of course, the president came out and said Hillary's emails were worse than Watergate. So I'd love to move away uh, from the cliché. Um, there are, of course, parallels. Um, in fact, I was just listening to a, you know, it uh, was a Slate podcast going back uh, and looking at Watergate. And, you know, we all study it in school, but the same things, you know, uh, cropped up again. Uh, the the, the creation of uh, of all these conspiracy theories, you know, essentially creating uh, an industry. There was a lot of partisan uh, tribalism there. Uh, you know, the, you could you could substitute the names. Uh, I, I, this I didn't know earlier. You had McGovern saying what uh, Nixon was doing was like Hitler. Uh, you know, the same sort of. You know, so yes, we're basically. Relive uh, versions of history; the fact pattern is completely different. Um, but you know, at core, it's a question of is the uh, you know is there mis- misbehavior at high levels of government, it, uh, and and then accompanying a huge number of conspiracy theories that go in directions that are not at all
1: justified. But also, the, the, um, the things that the Nixon White House said in response to the mm-hmm. post.
0: just as nasty in the same exact uh, uh, arguments. Uh, in fact, I commend you to, uh, I guess it's a 1972 Art Buchwald column in which he uh, you know, listed the 69 or, or however many explanations there were, and they're the same exact, thing. but what about this, the other side? You know, it's, so of course, yes, we just, we just go through uh, these cycles with uh, uh, different patterns. And now, our, our politics is not as healthy now uh, as it was during Watergate, because the parties are so polarized and uh, homogenous, uh, so, so we, we can't deal with these things quite as well as we did then. So, so what you're saying is, the I don't get the homogenous statement that you just made. I, 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 see no basis in that. Could you explain? Sure. I mean, when you know, if you look at, um, I mean, we have. 435 districts uh, in Congress, and roughly you know, 30 are competitive. Now, you know, in a, in a crazy year, you could get up to 70 or so. Which, after successive different party gerrymandering, would that, that certainly helped. Right, exactly. Well, we're right. So we're talking about, uh, you know, supermajority, uh, urban districts, overwhelmingly Democratic, the vast, you know, uh, other than cities, you know, dots of cities across America – uh, uh, in between the coasts, it is uh, virtually all red. Uh, you know, There's all kinds of evidence showing that people uh, worship with people of similar views. They live in neighborhoods with similar views. They go to school with people uh, of similar views. So it's not just our politics. We're just, uh, um, you know, I mean, ideologically uh, homogenous as opposed to you know, racially homogenous, um, but uh, although the two are often the same thing. Uh, so, and then as we were discussing earlier, the, the notion that we're only reading uh, news and receiving information that we uh, agree with. And, you know, um, I, I, do not, I do not believe, you know, when I started out in this business, I believe that people of all ideologies were reading uh, what I was writing. I don't think that's true anymore. I, I, I don't think any Trump will very few Trump supporters are reading the Washington Post at all, or if they are, uh, it's to jeer. Um, you know, they're reading, uh, they're listening uh, to Fox, and they're following the President's uh, Twitter feed. They're getting news from the Daily Call or, or whatnot. So that's what, that's what I mean. Uh, maybe you would use a different word for it. Yes, sir? You never know you were in a city that's, uh, what, what, 65 67% African American. And then you look at this audience. Or are we ever? I don't know if you'll ever be able to answer this question. Anybody can. Do we ever see an audience that's reflective of the population of an urban area in America? Well, I'm not sure. I don't know how well qualified I am to answer that. I mean, I you know I live in Northeast D.C. and I you know see it's a mixed race, mixed income neighborhood, and I uh, I do see that all the time. Of course, you know covering Congress. I mean. It, it, it's, it's a bit of a dis, uh, different uh, uh, situation. You know, look, I mean, ten years ago, we were talking about uh, post-racial America. Uh, what we've seen instead is a huge backlash. Um, but I also don't think that this huge backlash we're seeing now uh, is uh, uh, a permanent state of, of affairs. I mean, I, you know, we are, as I mentioned, we're, you know, heading into uh, a, a time when I know this is a minority-majority nation. Um, we are already in the House uh, Democratic Caucus after this election, and the white men will be a minority, uh, which actually is a long delay from where the Democratic uh, Party has gone. Um, I think you're asking about something subtler, and that is socialization and that. and am probably ill-equipped to say something intelligent, although that doesn't stop me on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, given the, given Mencken's temperament and inclinations, how do you think he would fare uh, on the staff of the Baltimore Sun, and the Washington Post, or the New York Times today? Do you see that he would be able to flourish? Oh, I I, I certainly hope so. I mean, you know, I you know, uh, I'm, sort of, I'm you know, at most a poor man's version of that, but. Uh, Yeah no I mean uh, journalism is sort of a a, a, the last great haven for a cynic Uh, so I don't uh, uh, um, no I I think you know and of course he inspired uh, you know generations uh, after him so um, you know we're all you know many of us are consciously or unconsciously uh, uh, emulating that you know this we we congratulate ourselves on. Uh, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the, the afflicted. I think uh, the best journalist is against all of it. Um, you know, I'm against the government. I'm against you know against the whole bunch of you. Um, the problem, I, I suppose, and I, I'm guessing, but uh, the, the, the press was in an earlier time and has returned to being much more of a, a partisan organ. I don't even mean ideological, but uh, but partisan. I would, uh, you know, when, during the Obama presidency, I took, you know, I felt it my duty. So, you know, I'm coming from the left, but I, I felt it my duty to, you know, take a crack at, uh, at that side uh, when I thought they deserved it. And you, uh, uh, you right now are not rewarded for that. You know, at best, uh, your readers won't read it. They don't want to see it the other side's not going to suddenly start reading it because they weren't looking for it in the first place, and they'll be suspicious. Um, uh, and you'll often get uh, uh, an, uh, an angry uh, response from folks. I mean, you know, I was, uh, uh, some of you may know, uh, uh, kicked off of a prominent uh, MSNBC uh, show by a host who thought I was uh, too tough on Obama. Um So, I mean, it's, you know, the Trump era changes this like everything else, uh, in that, you know, the sort of, uh, the ludicrous behavior seems to be dominated by one side. Now, it's not to say that Democrats won't be completely ludicrous if they regain power. They're just sort of largely irrelevant. So, um, uh, there seems to be largely a monopoly on crazy at the moment. Um, so... You know, you can, you can be a cynic and basically only picking on one side at this point. But anyway, I think the, that that model of, you know, being against them all is is still rewarded. Yes? Speaking of crazy, um, can you uh, touch base on the um, past presidency that will actually
1: really See Pence in all important places a couple of weeks later cleaning up the dung. And yet, and yet at the same time, he's much more lethal because he knows how
0: to get the job done or well, his agenda. Right. Well, let's separate two things. In fact, I wrote a lot of people disagree with this, but I wrote during the campaign that I thought. Ted Cruz was significantly less of a danger than Donald Trump. And I have the same view of Mike Pence, uh, and that is because I think they work, they basically, they're on board with the Democratic experiment um, that, you know, you know, winning elections, uh, following the procedures, using the procedures to your advantage. So I may disagree with... Uh, my kinds are Ted Cruz but I'm not concerned that they're going to fundamentally uh, jeopardize our institutions uh, so I don't think it's it, it's quite as dangerous now look I may personally um, uh, you know disagree with the, the president's uh, Supreme Court choices or the, the tax cut but those are within the realm of conventional political debate you know and that's why uh, you have so many uh, you know, previously normal conservatives who have signed on with this because they say, okay, well, we got what we wanted out of it. Uh, And that, there's sort of, there's sort of this reflexive support for Trump. You know, like, I had a poll recently saying 69% of Republicans say that uh, Trump is a good role model for their children. Now, of course, it's not possible. Obviously, 69% of Republicans don't literally believe that. But what they're, what they're saying is, Back off of my guy, because he's done what I wanted uh, uh, him to do. Um, so anyway, I would uh, I wouldn't say i welcome a, a Mike Pence presidency, but I would sleep better. You know, um, you know, they, I, I'm getting a lot of Ted Cruz in here today. But remember when he said that uh, that Trump might uh, he wake up one morning and Trump will have nuked Denmark. Uh, I don't Denmark not so much, but I do worry about the first part of, of the equation. Um, And I I repeated this, you know, a few months ago in a column, and I got this very anxious email from a man in Copenhagen, (laughs) and he said, will you please stop saying that? (laughs) We don't want to give him any ideas. Um, So just some you know, the notion, and Mike Pence wouldn't, uh, you know, frighten leaders about the future of NATO. Um, uh, You know, it's, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a green room now or something with the people from the George W. Bush administration, um, and we're all, you know, denouncing whatever's happening at the moment, and I will say, can you remind me what we were fighting about? Because it, it seemed awfully significant at the time, and of course it's significant, but it was all, you know, between the 40-yard lines, so that's that's sort of my view. I'm not I'm not frightened of Mike Pence. Yep. What
1: do you think about the anonymous source off that piece that came out with the Times? Is that a, a concept that believe in that's okay or
0: is that hiding I think the failing new york times should be ashamed of itself <laughs> They're going out of business It's a desperate um, you know here's I, I don't have an objection per se with uh, something anonymous running what i what i feel like is you know i, I was uh, talking about this in a, in a, in a tv show the thing and it, everybody's like who done it And I said, I'll tell you who did it. It's Captain Obvious. (laughs) Because, I mean, who in the Trump administration isn't thinking that? They're all saying it to us on background and off the record. You know, you look at the Woodward book, you can see versions of that, those sentiments expressed throughout, attributed uh, to people. Now, of course, for their own health and safety, they'll deny it. But uh, uh, it's very clear that that's, and and former officials uh, saying the same thing. And, and God bless her, uh, Amorosa. Uh, <laughs> Manigold is out uh, saying those things. So um, uh, to me, I think it basically hyped uh, something that uh, was already well-known in, in the public domain. So I think it was a bit of a gimmick, but I don't think that the um, New York Times should be chastised for it, although I still think they should fail. <laughs> you think the post would have approached in the same way well I guess I can answer that with impunity since I didn't ask my um, editors that question um, um, I, don't, I don't know is the answer I would, I would like to think that they would have uh, pushed for either something, uh, something more explicit or something that we hadn't known before uh, or would have pushed for a name who knows? Yes, sir? I'm curious. When you talk about people saying these things uh, in private? and I'm just wondering the setting, do people say these things over the phone? Will they only say it in personal meetings? If uh, you're walking to the park, uh, might Yeah, well, you yeah, know, they, they, they carry identical briefcases, and <laughs> <'cause> then, <laughs> then <we lose> <laughs> <that>. <laughs> you know, there's that parking. They knocked down the parking garage Watergate. gave it to find a new one. Um, no I, it's not there's not so much skullduggery here I think it's uh, I mean there, there is of course when you're dealing with intelligence in and, and, and that area, and of course everybody's using their encrypted apps now to communicate um, but I think in the trump white house it's it's far more it's you know it's just open season and uh, I mean you have to be honest they don't'm not like their first call <laughs> <laughs> given, given where I stand but you know for our uh, for our journalists you know Uh, Josh Dawsey or Bob Costa who are are well plugged in with these folks or Maggie Haberman um, uh, at the Times it's, you know, the call they're not even you know, it's basically you just sit there and wait for your phone to ring at this point because everybody's trying to um, uh, and I don't want me to belittle what they do but they they do very hard and uh, good work but everybody's sort of waging uh, a a PR campaign uh, to get there to get through to the president so you know how does the the president is le- much less likely to uh, take an action based on what you say to him in a meeting than what he's seeing in Fox and Friends. So the idea is you want to they're all trying to leak to win the public debate, discredit the other guys. Um, so it is it is a bit of a free for all, and it's certainly nothing like any administration I've ever seen. You know, back to back to Clinton, I I don't think there ever was such a thing. Let's do just one more. One more. Okay. What? Well, oh, she didn't do it you have uh, some insightful observations about Robert Mullen? I have no insightful observations. Um, <laughs> well, beyond what, uh, what we've seen. Um, look, I, it's, it's uh, I, you know, I, I wrote this the night he was, uh, another night, another perfectly good night ruined when he was <laughs> appointed to scrap the column and start again. Happens virtually every day. Um, but I felt that night that, you know, I, you know, uh, covered him a, a good bit, uh, you know, covering the, uh, the Bush White House. And I felt that, okay, I think we, you know, we, this will be a fair shake. And, uh, if, if Mueller comes back and says nothing to see here, I will be satisfied with that. Now, in terms of he's, he's found a few things to see here, but, uh, if he does come out and say, you know, well, it, it stopped, uh, with all the things we've seen so far, I think people should uh, accept that. I think we were extremely lucky at that particular moment that uh, 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 things did not uh, uh, go in a very different, different direction as they could have. Uh, you saw uh, uh, Rod Rosenstein was, I thought, you know, his, the, the, the memo about Comey, I thought, was disgraceful. He would, getting hammered and hammered. I don't know if he hadn't been receiving that hammering would he have a week or whatever uh, later uh, uh, redeemed himself. I I was in this very odd position recently of giving uh, the uh, graduation address to uh, Whitman High School in Bethesda, Maryland, where his daughter was graduating. (laughs) And of course, it wasn't totally unlike this. (laughs) <laughs> today, so I, I was uh, at risk of offending the great man. So um, I did add in a line uh, to the speech, and I turned to him and I said, Thank God for you, sir. And he scowled at me. <laughs> but I still thank God for him. So, all right, well, thank you very much.